Well, thank you so much. My wife and I feel so at home here at Fellowship Church, and we want you to know how much we love your pastor. And if there's a man that I feel like is a brother to me, it's Pastor Gary Clark. And uh, thank the Lord with me for your pastor, Gary Clark. Well, some of the things we're going to talk about today are a little bit serious, but we need to learn about it. And where else can we learn about it but in their church family? But it makes us appreciate Jesus all the more when we compare him to what else is out there. Sort of like going to Nebraska makes you appreciate Florida more, right? So we got Florida all the time, and so sometimes we have Jesus all the time, and we uh, forget how special it is that we have him when we look at the opposite. So we're going to go through this sort of quickly. And uh, a book and a DVD that I put together called What Every American Needs to Know About the Quran, A History of Islam in the United States. And then a DVD that uh, I do a television program, uh, and this is five half-hour programs where I talk about that. And so now, the majority of Muslims are not violent, but some are. And the some is the ones we're concerned about. And so we begin to see that uh, nine of the ten worst countries persecuting Christians are Islamic countries. And we are now beginning to see it come to America. And the different headlines that we have, uh, let me see if I can go through this. Uh, The San Bernardino, uh, just last week my wife and I were in Pasadena, and they were still talking about this. Uh, The Paris attacks, Boston bombings, Fort Hood shooters, beheadings in Oklahoma, street signs in Arabic in Michigan. And now we see there are Syrian refugees being brought to cities all across America, and the local communities have no say about it. And the FBI admitted there's no way of doing background checks. And so the concern is, are we actually bringing terrorists into our country? And uh, now most of them are not violent, and they're happy to live in our country, but there are some that don't like democracy, and they want to overthrow the governments of those countries. This is the Los Angeles Times had an Oscar-winning documentary on uh, Pakistani women where they get acid thrown in their face if they're not wearing burqas. And then CNN reported child brides. Uh, Mohammed's youngest wife was six years old, and so there's Muslims that want to follow that example. And they have corporal punishment. And uh, in Dira Square in Saudi Arabia, they uh, chop off arms and legs every week. I actually talked to a, several soldiers that went there, and they say if an American's in the crowd, they push him to the front so they can witness it. And uh, then they have <clears throat> Nigeria, and this is Christian villages that are being killed. Uh, just lots of headlines, and I'm sure you've seen many of these uh, yourselves. These are churches that have existed. I was in an airport talking to a Syrian bishop dressed in black with a big silver cross, and he says there are areas where for the first time in 2,000 years, all Christians have been wiped out. He goes, my diocese is empty of Christians. And, um, and so this is all happening during our watch, and uh, it is important for us to know. Now, this is the grave of Jonah in the Bible. From 700 B.C., his grave existed in Nineveh, Mosul, up until last year. The ISIS Muslims destroyed it. And so we ask ourselves, why? Why do some Muslims, not all, not most, but some, why do some Muslims persecute Christians and Jews? Well, they think they're following the example of Muhammad. Now, Muhammad was the best Muslim that ever lived. His life is called the Sunnah, which means the way or the example. And his life went through three stages. And so we need to understand these three stages because the Muslims that are wanting to be like him follow this. 
And so he went from a religious leader to a political leader to a military leader. So this is the world 20 years before Muhammad was born. It's the Byzantine Christian Empire, right? So it was Roman, and then Constantine in 313 becomes a Christian. And then the whole Roman Empire is Christian for three centuries until Islam came along. And um, anyway, so Muhammad's father died before he was born. His mother died when he was six. His grandfather and guardian died when he was eight. So he was orphaned and taken in by an uncle, Abu Talib, who was a merchant. And so Muhammad would ride with his uncle on camel caravans to different cities. And they'd hear about the different religions, the pagan, the Zoroastrian, the Jewish, the Christian. And so uh, in Arabia, they had 360 different pagan gods. They were mostly Canaanite fertility gods associated with the sun and the moon. And so um, they had their calendar begin with the first sight of the crescent moon over the desert. So this got incorporated into Islam. And uh, they had this rock they thought had fallen from the moon, and they would kiss the rock, walk around this rock, bow to this rock five times a day. Muhammad kissed this rock, and so it got incorporated into Islam. So they kissed this rock before Muhammad as a pagan thing for centuries, and then Muhammad sort of incorporated that into his belief system. That rock was in this square building called the Kaaba with 360 other different pagan gods. Now, the Persians were Zoroastrian, and the Zoroastrians believed that paradise was filled full of virgins that would fulfill all the guy's desires. Muhammad heard this, and it got incorporated into his belief system. The Zoroastrians also believed in jinns or genies, that spirits that followed people around. Matter of fact, the word genius was not somebody with a high IQ. It was somebody that had a genie that told them all the answers. So the next time somebody says, you're a genius, you can say, no, I just have a high IQ. Um, now, Muhammad could not read, which is not uncommon for that area. Matter of fact, the UN Development Program reported in 2011 that 30 to 40% of people in Egypt today cannot read. And so the Jews and Christians were the exception. They could read. They were called people of the book. And so Muhammad was never able to read the Old Testament. But he heard the oral stories called Talmud and Mishnah, and some of those stories got incorporated into his belief system. And then there's the Christian faith. And even Encyclopedia Britannica stated of Muhammad, the gospel was known to him chiefly through apocryphal and heretical sources. So Muhammad thought the Trinity was the Father, Mary, and Jesus. Nobody explained to him the Holy Spirit. And uh, apocryphal, what's that? Those are stories that are not in, considered inspired, so they're not in our Bible. One apocryphal work was called The Infancy Gospel of Thomas. It was written several centuries after Jesus by someone who knew nothing of Jewish life, fanciful little what-if stories when Jesus was a little boy. And it's like you making up childhood stories of Abraham Lincoln. Nobody's taken this serious because it's filled full of all these errors and inconsistencies. But they were floating around the desert and Muhammad heard them. So the infancy gospel said Jesus spoke from the cradle, made clay birds and clapped and they flew away and he raised a playmate from the dead. Guess what stories Muhammad heard and they're in the Quran and now they take him as fact that Jesus spoke from the cradle, made clay birds and clapped and they flew away and raised a playmate from the dead. There's no other place in ancient literature that these stories appear other than this infancy gospel that nobody then or now takes serious. And so Muhammad starts his faith in 610 A.D., and he's very excited about it, feels like there's something in it for everyone. 
and anticipates that they're all going to join. But he only makes 70 converts in 12 years. And he gets frustrated and confrontational and begins to insult the pagans and tell them that they're going to burn in hell. And so the pagans consider him as disturbing the peace, but they can't do anything because his rich uncle, Abu Talib the merchant, was his protector. So his uncle dies in 619 A.D., and then his wife, Khadija, dies in 619 A.D. He goes on to have anywhere from 11 to 22 wives after that, but this is his year of sorrows, 619 A.D., and so the people of Mecca decide to chase Muhammad out of town for disturbing the peace. And so Muhammad has no place to go. And he flees to a city called Al-Taif. They don't want him, and they pelt him with rocks and stones. And so he is a Muslim refugee. And so Muhammad uh, then goes to a Jewish city called Medina. And the Jews had three Jewish tribes control Medina. And they were nice. They let Muhammad in as a Muslim immigrant. And so Muhammad goes into the minority neighborhoods in Medina, and he begins to organize a following. We're familiar with the term of organizing in the community. And so Muhammad organizes, he gets a following, he goes back to the Jewish leaders, and he pressures them to accommodate him and his followers politically and make a treaty. And so they do. The Jews make a treaty with Muhammad. Now Muhammad is a political leader in addition to being a religious leader. Then something happens. Muhammad's followers in Mecca, they get argumentative, confrontational, threatening the way some of his followers are today. They get chased out of town for disturbing the peace. They go to Medina, and Muhammad allows his followers to rob the caravans headed to Mecca in retaliation for the Meccans chasing them out of town. So where Jesus said, if they take your coat, give them your shirt, his attitude was, if they take your house, you retaliate, take their caravan. So Muhammad got a whole chapter of the Quran, it's chapter 8, Surah 8, on how to distribute booty from robbing caravans. He gets a fifth of the booty. And so the Meccans send a thousand soldiers to protect their caravans, and you can see on the map there the caravan route. And the Meccans send their soldiers, and Muhammad defeats them at the Battle of Badra in 624 A.D. And this amazing victory, having been outnumbered three to one, convinces Muhammad to be a military leader. And he fights in 66 battles and raids in the next eight years before he dies. He even used the catapult when he attacked a city called Al-Taif. When he was told the catapult was killing innocent women and children, his response was, they are among them. So they got to be killed too. So suicide bombers and ISIS killers and San Bernardino killers say it's okay to kill innocent people to advance Islam because Muhammad did. And since Muhammad is the best Muslim, Muslims, they want to be better Muslims. They want to be more devout Muslims. They're wanting to be like Muhammad religiously, politically, and militarily. So there's freedom for all religions in America, but Islam is not just a religion because Muhammad was not just a religious leader. He was a political and a military leader. So a mosque is a religious building, a political building, and a military building. Bowing to Mecca is a religious bowing, a political bowing, and a military pledging of allegiance to another capital. And our effort in the West to split the religious side of Islam away from the political military side is we're trying to split Muhammad. Who are we to split their prophet? He was all three. And so we see there's two sets of verses in the Quran, and it's important for us to understand this. In the first city, Mecca, Muhammad was just a religious leader, so the verses he gets 
are just religious and they're relatively more peaceful. The verses he gets in Medina are political and military verses and they're more violent. And the later verses supersede the earlier verses. By way of comparison in the Bible, we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. Old Testament has some violence in it. Moses and Joshua wiping out tribes. The New Testament, Jesus and the apostles never killed anyone. And so what do we say? WWJD, the later, more peaceful example is the one we're going to strive to imitate. Right? It's the same way in Islam, only in reverse. Their peaceful verses came first when Muhammad was in Mecca. They're called weak verses, and they're superseded by the later verses that come in Medina. They're called strong verses. And so uh, why is that important? Because most Muslims in America are nonviolent. But the Muslim Brotherhood is saying, first go in and pretend like you're just a religious Muslim, and then when the signal is given is when you have your Arab Spring and you become a political militant Muslim. And they said, well, that's what Muhammad did. He first came into Medina as a religious refugee, and then he switched and he became political military. So in 627 A.D., the Meccans are hurting because their caravans are being robbed, and so they send an army of 10,000 soldiers to stop Muhammad from robbing caravans. Turns out Muhammad is a brilliant military leader, primarily because he's creative, he's unpredictable, he's unconventional. He does not play by the rules of traditional Arab warfare. And so uh, these 10,000 Meccan soldiers are marching toward Medina, Muhammad's version of roadside bombs and IEDs was he dug potholes and trenches all around the city, which rendered the superior cavalry of the Meccans useless. You can't charge your horses and camels across a field full of potholes. They'll break their legs. And so it throws off the battle strategy. Muhammad goes to some of the tribes at night, and he threatens them, and they slip away. Goes to some of the other tribes at night, and he bribes them, and they slip away. Sort of the Chicago politics, the bribe or the bullet. And then it gets freezing cold for a week. The rest of the Meccans lose heart and retreat and go back home. Sort of like last year when our president declared the war in Iraq and Afghanistan was over, brought all of our troops home and it left a power vacuum. Did they all become more peaceful? No, they got more violent. And so in this case, when the pagans retreated to Mecca, Muhammad was emboldened. He goes back into that Jewish city of Medina and the first Jewish tribe does something to offend him and his followers. And so he whips his followers into a frenzy, and they chase that entire Jewish tribe out and confiscate all their property. And then the second Jewish tribe does something that offends Muhammad and his followers, and he whips his followers into a frenzy. They attack that neighborhood, capture all their goods, and chase that Jewish tribe out. This actually set a precedent in Islam called Hudna, H-U-D-N-A, Hudna. It means when you're weak, you make treaties until you get strong enough to disregard them. So here we are wanting Israel to make a treaty with the Palestinians. The Islamic concept of treaty is just a ceasefire to restock missiles. Here we are talking about a treaty with Iran when their whole concept of a treaty is just to put your enemy off so you can finish your nuclear missiles. Anyway, so finally that last Jewish tribe, Muhammad bottles them in their neighborhood for 25 days. When they surrender, he brings them into the market and he chops off their heads. Six or seven hundred of them, and then he sells the women and children into slavery. So within five years of Muhammad coming as an immigrant into a Jewish city, there's not a Jew left in the city. They were chased out, killed, or enslaved. And so we see it's a three-step process. Within five years of Muhammad's death, every pre-existing culture in Arabia was wiped out. 
And so, like Caesar said, vini, vini, vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. Muhammad was immigrate, increase, eliminate. Immigrate as a religious refugee, increase the number of your followers, and then get involved politically, and then you gradually drive out the previous inhabitants of the neighborhood. And so I was speaking in Detroit, Michigan. There was a, a lady who had a ministry to pregnant moms, and she shows up at the Muslim house and has a little present. Well, while she's there, out of a bedroom comes another pregnant Muslim mom. Out of a bedroom comes another pregnant Muslim mom. Out of a bedroom comes another pregnant Muslim mom, all pregnant by the same man. He's practicing Sharia law in his house in Dearborn, Michigan. And then a man says, well, Fazl, he bought a bunch of houses on the block, has a wife in each one. They go down to the welfare office and say the husband's not around, and they get these checks. And he visits the wives, and the more kids they have, the larger the checks get. And so he's practicing Sharia law on his block, and all the kids playing in the middle of the street are his kids. And then they take over several more blocks, and they vote in the school board. And so now they have the girls wearing the burqas in the schools there in Dearborn. They take care of several more blocks, and they vote in the police department, the fire department, the city council, like Hamtramck, Michigan, now has a majority Muslim city council. And so then they put up their minarets and their loudspeakers, and they have calls to prayer five times a day, the same as in Pakistan. And so it's a three-step process. And now there's a 1,400-year track record where we can observe this. So there's really no mystery. If I was pitching a stock investment, you would go home and look at the track record. Is it going up or down? Well, if I'm pitching a belief system and I say it's peaceful, well, let's look at the track record. And so there's three springs in the 1,400-year history of Islam. The first is an Arab-Persian spring from 622 to 1071. Second is a Turkish spring from 1071 to 1923. And the third Arab spring started in 1928. So I'm going to try to go through this really quickly. And um, Islam is, does something called psychological projection or blame shifting. It's where the attacker blames the victim. It's like a kid on a schoolyard pushing the other kids around. Finally, a kid swings back, and, uh, and the, the, the bully says, Well, teacher, he started it. He hit me first, even though, you know. And, um, and so the Muslims would accuse their victims of offending them as an excuse to fight, and so they would conquer. And uh, they had the invention of the stirrup, which came from Mongolia to Persia, and then the scimitar sword. And that's Muhammad's sword. It's in a palace in Istanbul. And so it's his general, Khalid ibn al-Walid, and um, Syria. Did you know Syria was the first country to completely be Christian, evangelized by the Apostle Paul? And Antioch, Syria, is where the name Christian was first used until Khalif Umar conquered Syria. And then the Muslims conquered Yemen, which used to be a Jewish kingdom, like you can see on the map. And then Jerusalem had been a Byzantine Christian city since Constantine. And then the Muslims conquered Egypt. Did you know Egypt was evangelized by Mark that wrote the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And it was completely Christian for six centuries. And then there used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa, and they were all conquered by the Muslims. And then they invade Spain. This all happened within 23 years of Muhammad's death. It was then ISIS. It was them setting up their caliphate. Now, the, after Muhammad died, the supreme leader in Islam is called the Caliph, and his area he controls is the Caliphate. It's an RPM, a religious, political, military system, and they've always wanted to set it up. And so uh, they went all the way from Arabia to, to Spain. Now, when the Muslims conquered the Roman world so quickly, it was a heart attack to the Roman economy. So trade across the Mediterranean ended, sort of like 
today if China held their ships back for three months, all of our Walmart shelves would be empty? That's sort of what happened with Rome. All the trade across the Mediterranean stopped. One of the things that was traded was papyrus. These were reeds that grew along the Nile Delta that they dried out and used for paper. So suddenly there was a paper shortage in Europe. They wrote fewer books, and this was the beginning of the Dark Ages. And then they invade Spain in the year 711. Spaniards are still on foot with heavy metal swords. Muslims are on Arabian horses with stirrups and scimitar swords. In 10 years, they conquer all of Spain, cross the Pyrenees, conquer southern France. They are finally stopped outside of Paris at the Battle of Tours in 732 A.D., exactly 100 years after the death of Muhammad in 632 A.D. They go from Arabia to Paris in 100 years in a military campaign. And had Charles Martel, he was the grandfather of Charlemagne, had he not stopped the Muslims at the Battle of Tours, we would be speaking Arabic right now. Because German, French, English, and Spanish would have never developed as languages. We'd be like Egypt, where the Muslims actually cut out the tongues of anybody caught speaking the Coptic language. It took 700 years to drive the Muslims out of Spain. And so some definitions. The word Islam means submission to the will of Allah. A Muslim is one who has submitted to the will of Allah. And Islam believes there will be world peace when the whole world submits to the will of Allah. So to them, world peace means world Islam. So it is a religion of peace. It's just their definition of the word peace is different than ours. Our definition of peace is different groups getting along. Their definition of peace is having everyone submit to the will of Allah and become Muslim. Now, uh, Lincoln said, we all declare for liberty, but in using the same word, we do not all mean the same thing. We all want peace, but we don't mean the same thing. Now, in Islam, the world's divided into two halves. The half that has submitted to Islam, Dar al-Islam, and the half that's in the process of submitting to Islam. It's called the house of war. It's supposed to be at war. Now, what about moderate Muslims? Most mo Muslims are moderate. Most Muslims are nonviolent. And they believe the world is going to submit to Allah later. Maybe in the distant future, maybe at the end of the world. And since it's so far off, they just want to live their lives. That's fine. That type of Muslim has no problem living in a free democratic society and having you as a kafir infidel as a neighbor. The fundamental Muslim, on the other hand, they think the world is supposed to submit to Allah now. And they're really excited and they want to help make it happen. Now, the dilemma for us is the more we bend over backwards to show ourselves nice and respectful and tolerant, the moderate Muslim begins to say, this has never, ever happened before. Maybe the world is submitting to Allah now rather than later. And so they gravitate from the future peaceful camp into the fundamental now camp, which is the violent camp. So all of our efforts to show ourselves really, really nice is actually causing more violence. It's sort of like the law of the jungle. Our daughter used to have a friend that uh, led tours of school kids to the zoo, and they would go past the, the wolf cage. And they'd have one kid walk in front of the cage, and the wolves didn't even bother looking at him. Had the same kid walk in front of the cage, dragging his foot, acting like he's injured, and all the wolves start looking at him. And then they're studying him, and they're <laughs> going back and forth, trying to figure out how they can get across and get him. Weakness invites aggression. And so in Islam, they have a concept. When your enemy shows weakness, that is, that is an indication that Allah is giving them to you. So when you're finally bending over backwards a whole lot, thinking certainly they'll be peaceful, that's when they decide to really get violent. Some definitions of the word innocent. When Muslims kill people in Paris, and the president said, well, those people that did the killing, they don't represent true Islam. 
because Islam says it's wrong to kill the innocent. Well, let's define the word innocent. Innocent is a follower of the way of Allah. And so if you reject Allah, it says, Allah loveth not those who reject the faith. Be ruthless to the infidel. Make war on the infidels. Fight those who believe not in Allah. Kill the disbeliever. So if you are a non-Muslim, they're commanded to be ruthless and kill you. So when they say it's wrong to kill the innocent, it's code for it's wrong to kill Muslims. Now, in all honesty, the, fund the violent Muslims consider the non-violent Muslims as no longer followers of the way. And they're just as happy to kill them as they are to kill us. Right? So, anyway. Um, uh, so... Uh, Charlton Heston. I actually met him. I ran for Congress years ago, and he endorsed me. He was the head of the NRA at the time. But Charlton Heston uh, did a movie about El Cid. He was Rodrigo Diaz, this Spanish commander that was really good at driving the Muslims out of Spain. But he was wounded, and he needed one more charge to win. But uh, they, um, they said, you're going to die. You're, you're bleeding. And so he says, okay, strap me on the horse and tie me on really tight with a board up my back. And they open the barn doors, and they slap the horse. And he goes off charging. And all the rest of his warriors get on their horses and they charge and they win the battle. After the battle, they say, where's El Cid? We're celebrating. And they see him over there on his horse all by himself, sort of drooped over. It's one of those romantic chick flicks, you know, get some popcorn and snuggle on the couch. And, and so it took 700 years to drive the Muslims out of Spain. And while they were there, they enslaved over a million Europeans. There were whole Catholic orders in Europe in the Middle Ages called the Trinitarians, and they would collect alms at church services, and they would take the offering to go ransom back your friend that was captured by the Muslims. And they captured an entire Irish village in 1635, the stolen village of Baltimore, Ireland. The Muslim pirates come up, round up the whole town, sort of like Boko Haram. And then they captured whole coasts of Italy, where at 846 A.D. they had 10,000 Muslims invade Rome, Italy, and they trashed the graves of St. Peter and St. Paul. It was after that that Pope Leo decided to build the wall around the Vatican. And, uh, and then they enslaved an estimated 180 million Africans. Muhammad was a white Arab. There are Hadith stories of when he'd pray and lift his arms, they'd see the whiteness of his armpits, and he owned African slaves. And so they uh, would ca you know, castrate the men and so forth, and just heartbreaking stories. They had slavery of Africans for seven centuries before America was ever discovered. And now Spaniards did come over, and they did enslave Native Americans for a generation until a Catholic priest named Bartolome de las Casas, he was a contemporary of Martin Luther. So when Martin Luther's doing the Reformation, Bartolome de las Casas is trying to get the king of Spain to outlaw the enslavement of Native Americans. And he's finally... And then the greedy people say, well, where can we get more slaves if we can't enslave the Native Americans? And they say... Africa. And so that's when they go to the Muslim slave markets and bring them to the New World. And so every slave brought to America was purchased at a Muslim slave market. And, uh, and then even David Livingston in the 1800s was a Scottish missionary to the Congo. And he writes about stumbling across a line of Africans tied together, being marched all the way to the coast to be sold into Muslim slavery. And if they walked too slow, the Muslim slave trader would just shoot them. Or, he says you could tell where the slave trails were by looking for the vultures circling. And it still goes on today. There's actually more slavery uh, today in Muslim countries than any other time in history. And, uh, but what we just talked about going around North Africa into Spain, now they decide to attack Constantinople. This was the capital. This was the New York, Washington, D.C., so to speak, of Europe, where the Black Sea empties into the Mediterranean called Constantinople. But the defenders of Constantinople had a military advantage called Greek fire. 
This is where they took oil and sawdust and mixed it in these brass containers, and sort of like napalm, sprayed it at the Muslim ships. Now, everything, you say, well, Bill, you just talked about Muslims killing people. Didn't Christians kill people too? What about the Crusades? Huh? Well, let's talk about the Crusades. That's the second spring called the Turkish Spring. So the Turks originated around Mongolia, and they converted to Islam, and they invaded into the Byzantine Empire. Now, before we compare the Christians killing people in the Crusades and the Muslims killing people, let's not compare the followers. Let's compare the founders. So if your computer acts up, what do you do? You reload the software the way it was when you bought it. If your religion acts up, what do you do? You go back to the way it was when it left the founder. And so the largest religion in the world is Christianity, about 32 33%. The second largest religion in the world is Islam, about 22% followed by 16% unaffiliated, 15% Hindu, 7% Buddhist, down to 0.2% Jewish. So let's compare the founders of the two largest religions. Jesus never killed anyone. Muhammad killed an estimated 3,000 people. Jesus never led armies. Muhammad led armies. Jesus never owned slaves. Muhammad got a fifth of the slaves taken in battle. Jesus never married. Muhammad had anywhere from 11 to 22 wives, the youngest being six years old. Jesus never tortured anyone. When Muhammad conquered Kaibar, the last Jewish settlement in Arabia, the chief refused to tell where the tribe's treasure was hidden, so Muhammad had him stretched out on the ground, and they kindled a fire on his chest. He still wouldn't tell Muhammad had him beheaded. Jesus didn't lie. Muhammad permitted lying to the infidels so that you could subdue them. Uh, there's a story of a chieftain wanting to attack Muhammad, and Muhammad goes to his warrior said, Who will rid me of the chieftain? His one warrior said, I will if you permit me to lie. So the warrior goes to the chieftain and says, I left Muhammad. He's a heretic. I want to help you, but they're after me. So the chieftain says, okay, you can spend the night in my tent. My whole army will be surrounding. You'll be safe. In the middle of the night, the warrior tiptoes over and beheads the chieftain and runs all the way and gives the head to Muhammad. Uh, Jesus didn't uh, force anyone to follow him. Says something difficult. Many disciples walk with him no more. Muhammad said, whoever changes his Islamic religion, kill him. So you're free to join, you just can't leave. Sort of like Hotel California. And um, Now, this highlights a more interesting thing, is that we serve a God of love, and he wants us to love him back. But for love to be loved, it has to be voluntary. So God has this situation where he wants us to love him, but he can't force it. He's not interested in submission or I chop your head off. He's interested in love. And so he has to respect your freedom. So he has positive and negative motivations, but he's always going to respect your free will. And so, uh, you know, I tell people God for America has plan A and plan B. Plan A is he blesses us so much we turn to him out of gratefulness. If that does not work, there's plan B. He withholds the blessings and we turn to him out of desperation. His goal is to have us turn to him, but he can't force us. He just has to. Anyway, and so... Uh, uh, Jesus didn't avenge insults. Dying on the cross, saying, Father, forgive him. Muhammad avenged insults. Some guy made up uh, poems making fun of him, so Muhammad ordered him murdered. Jesus did not permit his disciples to rape anyone. Muhammad did. None of the apostles were governors or generals. Every one of the caliphs was a governor and a general. Jesus taught God was our father. In Islam, it's blasphemy to call Allah your father. Jesus taught we're children of God. In Islam, it's blasphemy to call yourself a child of Allah, because Allah took no wife and has no son. Jesus taught we're made in the image of God. In Islam, Allah has no image. Jesus taught to have a personal relationship with God. In Islam, it's blasphemy to even want to have a personal relationship with Allah, because he's transcendent and unknowable. The first three centuries of Christianity, there are ten persecutions, and Christians are thrown to the lions. The first three centuries of Islam, they conquer from Arabia to Paris. 
And so there's been 14 centuries of Muslim crusades, only two centuries of European crusades. And um, anyway, I had to throw this in because the Christmas is still in line. Um, the, uh, uh, the most popular Greek saint was who? It was St. Nicholas, right? The Dutch pronunciation of St. Nicholas is Saint Nicholas. Right, so Santa Claus is St. Nicholas. So he was the most popular Greek saint, lived during Roman times. And then when the Muslims invaded, they would destroy the graves. And so they moved the bones of St. Nicholas all the way from Greece to Italy. And, uh, and, so that's, uh, and so the pope that dedicates the church is Urban II. And he's the pope that calls for the first crusade. Now, in Holland, they have the story that... Uh, you know, in the, in the Catholic Church, they say St. Peter's at the gates of heaven. Well, the Greek Church does a take on the book of Revelation where Jesus will return at the end of the world to judge the living and the dead riding a white horse. And the saints will come back with him riding a white horse. And St. Nicholas is one of the saints, lived during Roman times, gave to the poor, but he's one of the saints, so certainly he'll be one of those guys riding a white horse. The Greeks just have St. Nicholas coming back once a year for a little mini-judgment. A little checkup on the kids, make sure they're on the right tracks. So he was naughty and nice, right? And um, and over the years, it sort of changes to the saints come from where? Heaven, the celestial city, the New Jerusalem. That turns into the North Pole. And in Norway, they didn't have horses, so he's riding a reindeer. And the Lamb's Book of Life and Book of Works turns into the Book of the Naughty and the Nice, and the angels turn into the elves. So it sort of gets off track from the original story. But in Holland, they still have Saint Nicholas as a bishop riding a white horse coming from Spain. And he gives presents to the good kids and the naughty kids. He has a little Muslim helper called Zvarte Pete. And he takes the naughty kids and he puts them into a gunny sack and takes them back to Spain and sells them into Muslim slavery. I actually talked to a guy last Sunday. He said he was from Holland. He says every Christmas Eve, or December 6th, because that was the St. Nicholas Day they celebrated. He goes, all the little boys were like really scared. And... Uh, I did a call-in radio show, and a guy said he was raised in, in Europe, and he says every Christmas Eve, all the little boys would make sure to go to sleep at night with a pocket knife in their pocket. I said, why is that? He goes, that's to cut ourselves out of the gunny sack in case Duarte Pete took us. He's going to sell us into Muslim slavery. I like the little kids like, oh, look. And the parents are like, we told you, you should have been a good kid. <laughs> look at this one. Here's the, these little kids. Please don't take me. He's grabbing them. And the <laughs> I had 11 brothers and sisters. I would have loved to have tormented my little brothers with this story. You may not be here tomorrow. St. Nicholas is coming. Um, so the pope that dedicated the church where the St. Nicholas remains were put is Pope Urban II. He's the one that calls for the first crusade. And so they send crusade, and uh, they stop the Muslims. Richard the Lionheart led the third crusade. Remember, he left his brother, King John, in charge of England, and King John had the Sherwood Forest, and who? The Robin Hood stories, right? And my wife and I are from originally St. Louis. He led the 7th and 8th Crusades against the Muslims. And uh, when the Crusades end, the Muslims now control all of Spain, North Africa, and over to Indonesia and the northern Indian Mughals and into Eastern Europe. And so that's the year 1300. That's their ISIS. That's their caliphate. That's their area that they control, the RPM, religious political military. And um, then <clears throat> Tamerlane, a Muslim leader that wipes out Christianity in Central Asia. And kills 17 million people, tells his men to come back with a skull in every hand. And um, anyway, and then they invade into Eastern Europe, and uh, these Eastern Europeans are holding off this horde. And then in the year 1450, they cross the Ottoman Empire, crosses the Bosporus, and this great Byzantine Greek Empire, the Roman 
is now purple. That's all that's left. And what are these green and brown? Those are Venetian and Genoan merchant territories who are selling military goods to the Muslims, knowing that they're going to turn around and attack the Christians. So now you have people in the West betraying the West Islam for money. Sort of like 1938 Standard Oil Company of California discovered oil in Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia went from the poorest Muslim country to the richest Muslim country. And all the rest of the Muslim world said, well, why be like the West to be blessed? And let's be like Saudi Arabia. And so we, in a sense, flipped the switch of the magnet and drew them because we made them Saudi Arabia rich so fast. And what did Saudi Arabia do with all that money? They began to fund the spread of those fundamental Muslims who want to reestablish the caliphate. And uh, so this is Sultan Mehmet II, and he conquers Constantinople. What's that thing? It's actually a cannon. They took the church bells from the Greek churches and melted them into the largest cannon in the world. Today they want the largest cannon, but instead of nuclear power, it's gunpowder. And so here's Sultan Mehmet II. He conquers Constantinople, and they turn the largest Christian church in the world into a mosque. That was Hagia Sophia. And they cuts off the land trade routes. And so Europe used to trade with India and China. Marco Polo went to China. Did you know that in 1271? China uh, had spaghetti noodles. China had gunpowder. China had thread from worms, silkworms. China had China plates. China invented the wheelbarrow, the compass, the Pony Express. China invented paper from tree pulp rather than from papyrus reeds. And what did they do with that paper? They made currency. The first paper currency in the world was during China's Yuan dynasty. That's why they call it the Yuan. But when the Muslims cut off Central Asia, it cut off the trade routes to get to India and China. And so that's when the Europeans looked for a sea route. And that's when Columbus set sail in 1492. Columbus thought he had made it to India. So he names the people he meets the Indians, think of it, we never would have called Native Americans Indians if it had not been for Islamic Jihad. And uh, Anyway, so as the Muslims are invading Greece, all the Greek scholars flee further west, and they go to uh, Italy, and they break the Greek art and architecture. This is what we call the Renaissance. And um, anyway, and then they bring their Greek New Testaments, and this is what causes the Reformation. And so in 1517, Martin Luther starts the Reformation. In 1529, 100,000 Muslims surround Vienna, Austria, and Martin Luther says, the Turk is the rod of the wrath of the Lord our God. If the Turk's God, the devil is not beaten first. There is reason to fear the Turk will not be so easy to beat. John Calvin said, I hear the sad condition of your Germany. The Turk again prepares to wage war with a larger force, so forth. John Wesley said, ever since the religion of Islam appeared in the world, the spousers of it have been wolves and tigers to all other nations. And anyway, so uh, this is what Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent controls. This is his ISIS. This is his caliphate. All right. And his counterpart is the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor of Spain. Spain used all the gold from the New World to help them fight the Muslims, to keep the Muslims from conquering Europe. And um, anyway, uh, we're going to skip past some stuff. Uh, so the little island of Malta is uh, a strategic island, and so 40,000 Muslims surround it, and they're defeated on September 11th of 1565. And then uh, 200,000 Muslims surround Vienna in 1683, the same year William Penn is founding Pennsylvania. And uh, the Polish king, Jan Sobieski, comes to their rescue on September 11th, 1683. And he has the largest cavalry charge in history. The soldiers had made wings for their back. And it made this enormous flapping noise when they charged and the Muslims dropped their weapons and fled. And so Jan Sobieski of Poland was considered the savior of Western civilization. And when he goes into the abandoned Muslim tents, he finds these bags of beans, coffee beans. And um, realizes this was the new drink that allowed the Muslims to fight day and night. There's the coffee beans. And the word coffee comes from the Arabic word kafir, which means infidel. Because the beans came from Ethiopia. And Ethiopia was one country in Africa that stayed Christian. 
So the Muslims called the Christians in Ethiopia coffers, and so this bean came from there. They called the coffer bean, or as we say today, the coffee bean. So have you had your cup of infidel today? But it's okay to drink. They took a cup to Pope Clement, and he tasted it and said, this is too good to leave for the Muslims. Let's baptize it. And so coffee spread across Europe. And um, anyway, so uh, finally, 100,000 Muslims invade um, uh, Hungary and Serbia, and they're defeated on September 11, 1697. And um, the... uh, Captain John Smith had founded Virginia, spent five years fighting the Muslims in Hungary before he founded Jamestown, Virginia. And uh, one of the pilgrim ships was captured by the Muslims, and they took it to uh, Morocco and sold the whole crew into slavery. But, uh, and then Napoleon invades Egypt in 1798, tries to introduce democracy. There's no word in the Arabic language for democracy or equality. Um, and so uh, he, he leaves. And then they finally attack um, uh, ships. And so there were... Um, You'd, every country would pay tribute to these Muslim pirates, to, and America breaks from Britain. We're no longer covered by the British tribute payment, and so it's caused the Barbary Pirate War. And uh, Jefferson asked the Muslims what America did to offend them. What did we do to offend you? And the Muslim tells Thomas Jefferson, says, The ambassador answered us that the laws of the prophet written in their Quran, that all nations who should ha- not acknowledge Islam's authority were sinners, and it was their right and duty to make war upon them. So here we are saying, what do we do to offend the Muslim world? Uh, nothing. <laughs> they just are commanded to attack us. So we were paying 20% of our federal budget to these Muslim pirates. And uh, finally, Thomas Jefferson becomes the third president. He's fed up and he sends in our Marines. And that's where we get the Marine anthem from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. And uh, James Madison has to send in our guys again. And um, anyway, I'm going to have to uh, pause here for the sake of time. And um, uh, so that, I took you through two springs. And I'll get to the third one in the next service uh, at the end. But before we close, I want to just, uh, don't you appreciate Jesus? Really makes you appreciate Jesus. And you can trace it all the way back to, uh, you know, Muhammad traced his origins back to Ishmael. And uh, the Jews, Christians, trace it to the Jews, to Isaac. Ishmael was the son that was sent away. So Ishmael's view of Abraham and Abraham's God was this distant God who sends you away and you can never please him. And so Islam has this God, their God is distant. Well, Isaac, he's like, oh, my, my dad, he's with me all the time. He loves me. He gives me everything, you know. And so the Jews and Christians get their view of Abraham and Abraham's God through Isaac. Now, you can take it even further back to Cain and Abel. Now, real brief uh, uh, to appreciate the gospel. You know, beginning of the new year, I encourage every one of you to begin a Bible reading habit and get back to reading the, the scriptures. You can go online. You can actually sign up for several. Well, they send you an email with a Bible reading for the day. And so um, we just read the story of Adam and Eve. You know when Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God? You know when you sin against somebody, you sort of don't want to be around that person? Maybe you're talking about somebody behind their back and making fun of them, and that very person walks through the door. Are you withdrawn to go over to them or say, eh, I think I'm going to go out the other way? Your own conscience doesn't want to let you be around that person. So it's sort of like two magnets that are stuck together, and one of them turns. The other one still wants to touch, but this one just wants to get away. So it's not so much that God sends people to hell. It's once people sin against God, their own conscience does not want to let them come into his presence. And so Adam and Eve said, man, we blew it. We've got to do something to make ourselves acceptable. They put on fig leaves. That was the beginning of false religions, the beginning of man coming up with man's idea how to make man acceptable to God. Did the fig leaves work? No. And God made Adam and Eve coats of 
skins. We read through that really fast. I know I've shared it before, but it's a great. How do you make a coat of skin? Something has to die. Now, do you think God went to the other side of the garden, killed an animal, and brought Adam Eve some nice tailored outfits? Or do you think maybe he killed the animal right in front of them? And they're witnessing the very first death ever. And they're watching this innocent animal go through the pangs of dying, and they're thinking to themselves, we're the ones that sinned, but this innocent animal is the one that's dying. And God wanted to make it really clear the animal was dying in their place, that he strips the skin off the animal, and he puts it on Adam and Eve. Maybe it still had some blood on it. And for the rest of their lives, Adam and Eve are wearing the skin of that animal that died in their place. And whenever God sees them, he sees them clothed with the skin of the animal, the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. And so Adam and Eve tell Cain and Abel, Cain decides he wants to worship God. And he does it through works. And he brings the fruit of the ground. And we know that it's works because God told Adam, the ground is cursed for your sake and you'll bring forth fruit by the sweat of your brow. So here is Cain trying to work his way to heaven. He's trying to put enough barley on the altar, enough wheat, enough oats. Does God accept it? No. And then Abel does the lamb thing. And it's this picture that God's on one side, man's on the other side. Our sins separate us from God and the lamb pays for the sin. And so Abraham offered lambs, and Moses had every family in Israel offer him, and John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb, a God that takes away the sins of the world. So I ask people, are you approaching God as a Cain or as an Abel? If you're still hoping you're good enough to go to heaven, you are approaching God as Cain. I want to worship God. I want to put enough stuff on the altar. Maybe one more handful of barley will do it. Or are you approaching God as Abel? It's not me. It's this lamb that died in my place. And I want to do good things so I can show the rest of the world how much God loves them. But you don't do the good things thinking that you're putting stuff on the altar or hoping that you'll earn your way. Islam is the religion of Cain. There's no lamb in the Islamic theology. It's all works. And Jews and Christians trace the salvation through the lamb. And so can you say, thank God for the lamb? Well, I'm going to end with that. God bless you.